0: Welcome to
1: the Change Lab, a podcast for people who are all about personal development, leaning into their potential, and becoming their best self. Just, you know, starting next Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Sasha Heinz, and oh, sh- it's Monday. Mates, and cheers to our Monday fresh start. I hope you are taking it if you need it. Today's episode is a particularly special one for me because we are joined by the host of the Raising Good Humans podcast and the goodest of good humans herself, Dr. Eliza Pressman. So let me give you her fancy and formal bio first. Dr. Eliza Pressman is a developmental psychologist with nearly two decades of experience working with families and the healthcare providers who care for them. Aliza is an assistant clinical professor in the Division of Behavioral Health Department of Pediatrics at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital, where she is co-founding director of the Mount Sinai Parenting Center. Aliza is also the host of the very popular podcast, Raising Good Humans, and the author of the Five Principles of Parenting, Your Essential Guide to Raising Good Humans, which will hit bookstore shelves tomorrow, January 23rd. She holds a BA from Dartmouth College, an MA in Risk, Resilience, and Prevention from the Department of Human Development at Teachers College, and her PhD in Developmental Psychology from Columbia University. What a badass. I love reading my friends' bios. It is such a fun reminder of how incredible they are. Anyway, she's very impressive. Well, this is the most exciting thing in the world. I get to have one of my favorite people, friend, and colleague, On the Change Lab, Aliza Pressman, Dr. Aliza Pressman. Hi. Oh, hi. Hi, hi. I'm I'm so excited. Me too. By the way, everyone brace yourself because I will be talking over her. (laughs) I get so excited. I for sure will be interrupting. I don't mean to. I just can't see her face. So I don't get the visual cues where she's like, shut your mouth, lady. (laughs) Oh my God, I would never. I'm so excited to talk about your new book that just came out, The Five Principles of Parenting. Let's talk about it. Okay, let's talk about it. Let's dig in. What made you want to write the book, first and foremost? I've known you for so long. By the way, let me just back up for a second because I'm, you know, my preamble here. I have so many wonderful things to say about this lady. But Eliza is, in my opinion, the most accessible, and I mean that as the highest of compliments, Developmental psychologist around her approach to parenting is so deeply grounded in research. Honestly, I see all this stuff online, all these best practices. I'm like, mm, mm, Lisa was teaching me this stuff 15 years ago. You are so steeped in the research and such an expert, and have such a beautiful, gracious, and loving, and shame slaying way of talking to people about parenting and the relationship with their kids. And I just love you so much, and you're such a fresh voice, I think, in this space. And we'll get into all of that. But you know, one thing I wanted to say about you is that this is a really nerdy distinction. But Eliza is the parenting expert for people who are self-authored parents. And what I mean by this is that she's not going to tell you what to do. She's leading you to be your own compass, right? She's she's helping you become the leader as a parent. And I think that sadly, is kind of rare in the parenting space. So you are such a welcome voice in this field.
0: Oh my gosh. That's really so, I'm uncomfortable with how
1: kind that was. It's all true. (laughs) It's all the darn truth. Also,
0: I like the shame slangs.
1: You are. You are. It's so hard for people to even work on their relationship and work on their parenting because they can't, they got to wade through all the shame first i know there's a lot of noise and a lot of shame and a lot
0: of it is inevitable because it's just part of you know the history of being a person but i wrote the book to kind of relieve people a little bit and boil it down to the science that really matters and then acknowledge what doesn't matter and mm-hmm. then give practical applications of that science in all of the ways that i imagine things come up because I'm also a parent and I work with parents, but I'm hoping that it gives kind of a fluency to being, as you said, like having your own compass and feeling like you don't need a script and you don't need an exact roadmap because there's a handful of core principles that if you apply them to any scenario, more often than not, and really no more than that, you're good to go. And you can focus on just like a little bit of joy and a little bit of other things.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. uh, By the way, I just want to go back to what you just said about relief. I think that's such an interesting motivation because often I, I would imagine that parenting books and in this space, what people are writing, it's to instruct, to teach, to help people become more skillful as a parent, better, quote unquote. But I love this idea that what you're really bringing people is a sense of relief. I'm like, tell me more about that. What happened was
0: when I first started doing this, as you well know, I would bump into parents on the street who were in parent groups, let's say, mostly mothers, and they would apologize to me. Like, oh my God, you're kind of busting me, if that makes sense. Right. And maybe that was because it was past bedtime and their child was out to dinner, or maybe it's because they were, you know with an older child who had a pacifier in their mouth and just these things that the first thought they had when they saw me was, I'm I'm so embarrassed. I'm so sorry. You must think I'm the worst mother. And I was like, Mm. what? This is a me problem then. And... What do you mean by that? Well, it means that whatever information and teaching I'm doing, I'm doing it wrong. Because I know that there's no data to suggest that they're Having dinner after bedtime or letting a child use a pacifier is like long term going to have anything to do with the outcomes that really matter. Mm-hmm. It just might make the next day really uncomfortable because the child is overtired. It might make the dentist a little irritated, but it's not like shifting anything in the big picture of what really matters. Right. So the idea that I would participate in optimizing parenting in such a way that Parents felt like they were failing or getting a bad grade or something, that I was grading them at all. Felt like, okay, I have to adjust my approach. And so when I set out to write this book, I felt like, okay, what is the feeling that I want someone to have when they're reading the book? And the feeling was relief. It wasn't anything else. Honestly, I want people to have a sense of competence and I want people to feel armed with what they need to know, but that's not the primary goal because I don't think any of it matters if we're stuck in a just self-loathing shame of like what a incompetent parent we are. Yeah. So I I didn't want to add to the noise and I certainly didn't want to add to that sense that I think I gave earlier in my career of Somebody's not doing enough. So I didn't want anyone to read the book and go, oh my God, I've screwed up or I've done it all wrong.
1: Right. I wanted them to feel relief and support. I love that so much. I think, I mean, for you, it's such an occupational hazard that, you know, you sort of have to mitigate that from the get-go. But I think that's so important because since we've made parenting a gerund, we've made it into a profession. It's something that we can perfect and do better as opposed to just being in a relationship. Like we're not friending or husbanding or wiving, you know, we're just a wife or a friend, but for parenting, it's like, it's a job that we do so we can ostensibly perfect the skill, I suppose. That's maybe what it implies. But I think that this idea that there's some sort of end product, like if, if they don't get it right, then we have failed, right? So we're, we're already, it sets us up to be antagonistic in some way.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I certainly wouldn't want a deep secret resentment toward a human that I love deeply because they're holding up a mirror of my vulnerability and frailty and lack of success or something. I think we would never overtly think that or say that, but I think it gets in there. And it's that, or you feel so ashamed that it corrodes the relationship either way.
1: Yep. What do you think the biggest concern when you're talking? Because you work so much with parents of kids. I mean, you're constantly working with the parents. What are the big concerns that come up? What do you think are the sort of like pervasive issues that parents seem to be most worried about? I'm sure that's age dependent too. So, yeah, I think the parents of younger
0: kids, it's often survival. So it's like just yeah. tantrums and toilet training and sleeping and just like, ah. But I think as parents, Get older and kids get older, the worries start to be more like, Did I screw my kid up? Is my kid resilient? Is my kid fragile? Is this going to hurt them? I think a lot of it is like, Am I harming my child?
1: Mm. Do you think that that's a good question to ask? Like, do you think that that's a useful question? Helpful? <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: No, I mean, I think that it plays into the future thinking that is anxiety. And lack of control and outcomes-based and all of the things that bring out not our greatest leadership. So it doesn't help. And also, of course, you're not causing harm. I mean, let me say this. You could be causing harm, but Mm -hmm. probably if you are paying attention, checking in with someone and reflective enough to wonder, then you can make repairs and not
1: cause harm. Right. You know, you said something Recently about repairs that I swear it exploded my mind. I was like, "Wait, I've never heard anybody explain this this way, and I've been around the block, but you said something about the research in that first year, so I presume you're talking about the mom child caregiving yeah. diet, or you know whoever the primary caregiver is, and in that first year, it was something like seventy percent of the time is disconnection, like only thirty percent is Attunement? Yeah, that was
0: Edtronic's research.
1: We explain that to people because honestly, that for me was
0: mind-blowing. I know because it's so hard to believe in the vision that we have in our heads of the beautiful dance that we do with our infants. But in general, the research shows that much of the time is spent on the ruptures and repair, the small disconnects and reconnections, not the beautiful dance. So... That's not to say that you shouldn't make attempts at connection. It's to say that for the majority of people, the expectation we have is that connection is going to be most of the time and that the disconnect and discord and repair is the 30% of the time, right? And it's reversed. And it just shows you the power is in the stability of the love of the relationship and the capacity for us to keep coming back to each other. It's not in staying locked in connection.
1: First of all, this ratio surprised me, really surprised me. I thought it would be, as you said, the other way around. And of course, what you brought up, which I thought was so insightful, was if this is happening in the first year, there's something important about the fact that 70% of the time were not connected and then repairing, you know, we're not attuned and then we're repairing the connection 70%. That's the majority of what we're doing in our relationship with our infant.
0: Yes. We are growing the belief and the confidence that we are always there because we have experienced those little moments. Now, I'm not talking about like an infant and adults fighting. (laughs) It's really just like when you look away or you are doing the laundry and your baby made a bid for your attention and it took you a second. Or we're not talking about these like discord, like the way you might think of a couple fighting. But it's still, when you are in the thick of it, it feels like, is something wrong with me that I don't feel connected right this moment and at every moment? Is something wrong with me that I need to take a shower? Am I hurting my child if I'm going to take a shower? And so it's just important to put it in perspective, like obviously that those are lab studies and you can ask all sorts of questions about what that means. But in general, like it gives you some sense that there is growth. There is a necessary part of this process of growing in relationship that requires rupture in order to have repairs, in order to have confidence and connection.
1: Right. I love that. That's, I mean, I just think that alone is just so mind bending that it requires the rupture. The rupture is part of the process, it's part of the growth and the development. And then, of course, it's true in
0: adult relationships and it's true in relationships with an adolescent. It's just that I think there's something mind blowing when you think about a mother infant dyad because your expectation is like some beautiful painting of, you know, Mary and child. Yeah, exactly.
1: But it's just human. This is very real. You have a very successful podcast, Raising Good Humans. Everybody should tune in and listen. It's so brilliant. What makes a good human? Well, Sasha, I actually have... (laughs) Do you have your pipe? (laughs) Very scholarly. (laughs)
0: Brace yourselves, everyone. And I do cover this in the book. Because I think there's a real audacity to saying you're a guide to raising good humans. But a good human is how you define it. It is none of my business. It is none of our business as a general matter, like how you define good human, but we all know exactly what it means. There's a variation between what we perceive as good human, but we know, everybody knows in there, there's something that you feel like, I don't need a definition of that. I just Mm -hmm. know. And I would never presume to tell you who is a good human for you or what your values are, but I would presume to tell you that if you name your values and you approach your parenting and your way of being in the world aligned with those values, you will raise a good human.
1: I love that. I think so much of your book and so much of the work that you do is really also about the parents and helping the parents develop their own manual their own understanding of who they are and what they're about and what their values are and how they want to translate that to their child i mean it's something that frustrates me and and i think perhaps was part of the motivation not to focus on cuz Elise and i both went to columbia and we're in the same doctor program there and i don't focus on children now i focus on adults but I had this overwhelming anxiety as a mom when my son was born. I don't want to constantly be judging myself up against some standard that I never will hit in my mind, right? Like right. There's some best practice that, and you have a personality, you're just a sanguine human being. So I, I was like, you always manage to just handle it. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, I would just unravel.
0: <laughs> as you know, like one of my superpowers is that I am a hundred percent comfortable with being incredibly flawed.
1: (laughs) So it makes Um, you still level back, but you're like the least flawed. Aliza is one of the funniest people on the planet, you guys. She's so funny. (laughs) Oh my God. But I
0: really feel like the other thing is in all of our work in graduate school and studying all of this stuff, there is no alignment in the science with any particular best practices to the point of 100% or Mm even 80% or any percentage for that matter. I think it's on balance. And even the language of best practices, which is what is in the literature and even in medicine, is a little bit funky because it's not strength-based. right? So it doesn't set you up to feel great or competent. But I do think even if you did really focus on best practices, the best practices are kind of understanding the core principles, doing them the majority of the time. So you're not doing them 20% of the time. I mean, it is more often than you aren't, but that's not as high of a bar and it sets your kids up for more resilience and better. So the ironic thing is the sort of perfectionist parenting is the enemy of actual, perfect parenting if that existed.
1: Why? What does it mean? I mean, what's happening when someone's going after being As I I know sort of theoretically what you're talking about because I can see it and I can feel the impulse in me.
0: Sure. I think it's that imagining you are not just parenting in a vacuum, but you are raising a human or multiple humans who are watching you. And if you're berating yourself for the mistake You're sending a message. And when you do that over and over again throughout a child's life, all that effort you made to be the perfect parent was actually serving up, you know, I hate to put it in a way that makes anyone feel guilty. Although if it motivates you to go easier on yourself, you are setting them up to be vicious to themselves Mm -hmm. when they go out in the world.
1: Yeah. So I have a question about that. If you have children who are tough on themselves, right? Because I think here we go. Let me just give you an example of the spiral down into Hades. So you have a child who's (laughs) beating themselves up. I'm speaking for a friend, Um, a child who's beating themselves up and being critical. And then of course, I'm immediately thinking, I did this. Your fault, right. I screwed them up. I made them hard on themselves. I made them feel unworthy. I made them feel unloved. And then I go down my own rabbit hole to hell. What's going on there? And how do we pull out of that?
0: I think those are the moments to remind yourself that you made a mistake because you were hard on yourself about something that your child is going through instead of focusing on what's your child going through? And I think we do right. that all the time where this is maybe not going to resonate. So I'll give it a whirl. I remember very vividly, this might make me sound like a lunatic. When my older daughter was playing at a friend's house and she was jumping up on the coffee table and everybody was super relaxed. And I was not, because that is not my way of being when it comes to physical risk. I'm just like very much not an athlete. (laughs) And so I was like really anxious, but I was also with a group of parents and trying to not be a buzzkill. And she fell and hit her head and got a goose egg. And what's my first response instead of holding my child and making her feel better, I like grabbed her out of fear, but was angry. I was like angry. Right. Because she proved that I was a shitty parent in that moment. Like that's what I went to. Right. Excuse my language. No, no. And it was a really weird moment. And I'm not like, it does not represent the majority of my experience parenting, but it stayed in my mind because I was very ashamed of the fact that my go-to, obviously she's fine and she's 17 and all is forgotten. But it was a moment I wasn't proud of because I was like, ew, I don't like this person. I just got mad at my child instead of, just caring for her when she fell because I loved her so much. And I wanted so much to be such an amazing mom and make all the right choices and balance my anxiety with giving her freedom and all that stuff. And instead of focusing on, okay, now she hit her head and she needs a kiss and a hug and we're going to sit here till she feels better and some ice, I was like, I made the wrong choice. Mm. It's about me. And I'm now mad at her for, you know, and. I just remember that moment so clearly because I was like, that's very confusing. Like, I love this kid. And obviously I can't say that I would have had the same reaction if it had been a major fall. It was a minor fall, but it was still a goose egg. It was enough that I was scared. Mm -hmm. And it was a strange reaction to have. And I just looked at that and I thought, I wonder why I just had that reaction. Like, what a weirdo.
1: Right, because but what you're saying about perfect parenting being the enemy of perfect parenting, that your desire to be a good parent, to be the best parent possible, like that was the primary concern in the moment instead of the connection with your kid. And it's not a criticism, right? It's just in that split second, it was, oh my God, I did something wrong, by the way, because you you want your kid to be safe. The intention was totally loving and caring. But it was about that, like, I need to feel like I'm a good parent. I need to feel that I'm being the best parent.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And so these are just moments and they don't mean anything in their isolated moment, but on balance, like if you're watching that and that's happening over and over again, you have to look inward and say, how do I get out of this loop so I can actually be here with my kid?
1: Yeah. Yeah gosh, you know what? Parenting is just so hard. I mean, I I just do the (laughs) dumbest things. I mean, the dumbest things. My daughter's getting, she gave me permission to use this. By the way, I will tell you, not only did she give me permission to use this the other day, she's like, have you brought this up yet on your podcast, mom? (laughs) You need to out yourself. But they had picture day and it was late. It wasn't, you know, it was in the wintertime that they were doing their picture day. And in the morning, my daughter's smiling and because we live in the world of selfies and social media, it was like weird smiling, right? It was sort of canned or forced or unnatural, right? And in a way that when we were little, we didn't do because we didn't see pictures of ourselves all the time and we weren't doing this all the time. So, anyway, she's smiling and I make some comment like, oh, just do your natural smile, be your normal self, <laughs> some wow. extremely unhelpful comment like this. My daughter looks at me and gets quivery lipped and upset. And I realize, oh my gosh, I just, like, I'm trying to get her to not be self-conscious and I just made her more self-conscious. I'm such a dingbat. So I then said to her, I'm so sorry. I'm such a bonehead. And you know, that's what we do sometimes. I'm a ding dong. Did not mean that. And I just made you more self-conscious. I'm so sorry. Anyway, then the later that afternoon when I pick her up from school, I'm like, how did picture day go? And she without skipping a beat. She's like, it was totally fine because when we got to school, they have this social emotional class called Ascent is the program that they're using. Anyhow, they had the class in the morning and she said, it was totally fine because when I got to school, we were talking about our thoughts and feelings. And so I just shared with everyone that I was really angry and frustrated because my mom criticized my smiling on picture day and everyone really made me feel understood. And the teacher told me that, you know, sometimes parents, and I'm sitting there like, Oh my God. I mean, I see, I'm like, wait, you brought that up. What? You brought that up with your class? (laughs) Oh my God. I was (laughs) like, awesome. That's awesome. So, like, waves of shame as I see her teacher, like, hi. Yep. That was I know. That, That was me. Amazing. But it was just so funny. And we ended up like, I mean, we were laughing about it, but I was just like, this is the poetry of being a parent. You know, there's just the indignity of being a parent. You're trying so hard to get it right. And I will, tell you what, I was thinking about my words. I wasn't being flippant. I was actually thinking about how can I say this?
0: Yeah,
1: I was trying to be intentional. And then I'm the, the fodder for thoughts and feelings that morning. It was so freaking funny. But anyhow, I mean, I was like, here we go. This is parenting for you right here. You're trying so hard and you epically fail as you're trying.
0: What I hear as you tell that story, you guys connected over it and she wasn't afraid of criticizing you. (laughs) So I feel like it was a winning story.
1: Oh my gosh. I mean, it was by the, way, it was just the whole thing was just so hilarious. And then she was like, don't worry, mom, you were not the only one. You were not the only mother that we talked about. I was like, good to know. Good to know. I'm in good company here. We're all failing. Awesome. You know, but I think it's so hard when you get caught up in, am I? and I think so often I'm stumbling over my words only because I'm trying to say it in the most sensitive way, the least hurtful way the most caring way the mo- whatever and and in in doing so i'm missing moments of attunement and connection cuz i like, i wouldn't talk like this to anybody else any friend my husband like we don't talk like that you know you're not scripted. watching your yeah i was scripted or sort of monitoring yourself to the same extent i feel as you know we've talked about this i feel
0: sad for this and part of it is just the industry that you know, we want in the field of child development and developmental psychology and any really mental health fields to promote positive growth. So of course it makes sense to do the research, to figure that out, to help support families as best we can. But then we can take it too far and give the impression that there is minutiae information that is critical in order for our children to thrive. And that I think is a real mistake. I think what happens is it gives us false confidence that we're doing enough. Mm -hmm. And so if we follow all of this, our kids are going to be okay. And it's born of love and effort and wonderful things. But unfortunately it ends up being really corrosive to ourselves, our relationship with our kids, it's a deficit model. It's like, Mm -hmm. what is wrong with you? Instead of, hey, there are some things about you and your connection with your child and your way of being in this world that are fantastic. Let's amplify those and focus on the few things that we know are actually in our control and then just live our lives. And that's actually about as much as we know about child development. The rest is stuff that people are kind of extrapolating.
1: Say more about that. Cause I think that that's, I mean, I think that that's such a risk in the world that we live in now where people make way too much of a small finding or an, you know, an unrepl- right. something that's not replicated. But if you could distill it down to the essentials of, of what to be a loving, supportive parent with a good relationship, a secure relationship with your kid, I won't say good. Cause what does that mean? But a secure relationship right. with your kid, what are the essential elements of that? Well. Since you asked, (laughs) (laughs) I want to know. That is where the five principles come in.
0: I think when you focus your attention more often than not on cultivating a relationship, reflecting on your experience being parented, how you're responding, what's going on for your child, just reflection, regulation, both regulating yourself and helping support your child's regulation. So, co regulation, self regulation and setting rules that are clear, that you have appropriate expectations, that you make them clear, and that you're consistent about it, and that you make repairs when you blow it, which you will many times, there's nothing else in the science other than to align with your own values and to acknowledge that your child comes into this world, already a seed that has been planted, like that flower is chosen, So you're growing that child to be who they are, not to be some other person. And you too are a particular type. Like when I was describing my personality when my kid is doing something physically risky and I'm in a group of other mothers, I have to know, I have to know myself. Like it's not my Mm -hmm. jam. So Mm -hmm. I need to walk into that setting and say, this is not easy for me. I'm gonna do my best to recognize that go a little easy on myself. So even if you just use that example, the relationship part is connecting and paying attention to your kid. Again, just more often than not. The reflection part is walking in and taking a breath and saying, I really can't stand when I'm in this group because they are high risk takers and I am a low risk taker when it comes to climbing, jumping and being fun. (laughs) (laughs) I am not fun and I'm going to just breathe and acknowledge that so I'm prepared. I'm walking into this situation. I just I'm going to keep reminding myself no one is being chased by a saber-tooth tiger. I just don't like this feeling, but I'm going to just be aware of it. And then I'm going to remember that I had the same mom <laughs> who really did the same thing, so it's like really deep in there and I I'm working on it. And then I would regulate because I would see all of that. And so when my daughter fell, I would grab her, know that she's okay and be able to breathe again. And I would adhere to the rules that I make and say, listen, here is what is a boundary for me. You know, you wouldn't say it in the heat of the moment, but I would set up a boundary for me that says when we go into this space, If I get too nervous, I'm going to remove my kid because that's my decision. You know, like I'm setting that up in a clear way, or I'm going to tell her in advance, or I'm going to say, by the way, there's no jumping on that glass coffee table. That's my rule that I'm setting up for you. And if you do, I'm going to help you take your body off because I need to keep you safe. And then, if I don't, which I didn't, which I did none of, I did none of the things, then I would say, I'm really sorry. I just got so freaked out. I love you and I'm glad you're okay. And we would reconnect mm-hmm. and probably catch ourselves laughing about something and being okay. And we move on and, until the next thing happens. And I know that was a really long winded way of saying it. And maybe it doesn't make sense in this context, but that's it. It is five things that you do have to remember. But that really does give you the information you need that we really know from the science moves the needle on resilience. So everything else, like the minutia of it, how you're feeding, how you're sleeping, how you're dressing, how you're playing sports, how you're doing in school, that falls into place the way it's meant to when you have these core principles. And if it aligns with your values, like the example of like how your kid is doing in school is one of your core values, education. Is one of your core values, grades and achievement. Like not for me to judge, but just paying attention to that. If it is and you make it clear, this is going to be a part of your story.
1: Right. When I lose it as a parent, often what I find has happened is my child has done something that doesn't align with my values. And so what my anger is really about is, as you were saying, right? I haven't done a good enough job of teaching them that this is important and I'm shirking my duty. I'm not doing a good job. And so in some way, you know, my frustration or anger, or whatever that comes out, is not really about them. It's like, it's an externalized to them, but it's really about me feeling like I haven't, Made this clear, right? You can use the example of education, like as a child is maybe phoning it in at school, you can externalize that to the kid. But the reality is, like, where the real anger lies is internal. Like, somehow I haven't made this explicit. I haven't made this abundantly clear that this is something that really matters to us as a family or to me, et cetera, right? And so, really owning and understanding what your values are. And I think so many people that I work with as adults, I mean, if I say, what are your values off the top of their head? They're like, look at me. Like I have three heads. What are you talking about? Total blank stare. What?
0: Yeah. I mean, I have a a part of the book that just like walks through how to figure that out. And it's not to tell you what yours should be, because I don't want to be responsible for that, but it's to give you exercises to get there. And I would even go as far as saying, if for example, you thought your core values included school achievement and that might be different than education. That's, you know, like a whole other conversation. But if you thought that was part of your core values and it keeps getting messed with, and you're like, this is going very wrong. It might be a time to know that your core values aren't aligned with your external presentation or like your external behaviors or your, how you're kind of moving through the world with your kids. And you can say, well, Which one is true? Is the value itself actually true? Or is it that I'm not really honest with myself about my core values?
1: Right, right. And at one point I heard you, I can't remember where I heard you say this, but I thought this was such a good idea, but asking them to reflect, what do you think my values are? I mean, isn't that an illuminating question to ask a child? You observe me day in and day out. You see the real unvarnished me. What do you think I care about? (laughs) It might be a little frightening to get that answer.
0: It is. And it is one of the exercises in the book because the truth is that you can have family values, you can have a family mission statement, but as your kids get older, you can say to them, what do you think our family mission statement is? And if they're like saying it's completely different than what you would like to believe, it doesn't mean one is wrong and one is right, but it does mean you have to figure out either the way you're parenting is not like getting across your core values and your mission, or you gotta change it and accept that maybe it's different than you thought and that's something to look at. And I think the more open we are and the less judgmental we are of ourselves, the more we have room to be integrated people who actually like live by what feels right on the inside.
1: Yeah, it takes courage to be able to ask your kid a question like that. I just think that's brilliant. It takes courage to ask a kid because you're really allowing them to have the space to say, you really want to know what I really think and being willing to not want to hear what they're about to say. That's right. And I think that's a great example of if your kids
0: can do that, if you can ask your kids that question and they can answer and their answer isn't to your liking and they are not concerned about how you respond, I assure you you're raising good humans. Because I'm not talking about disrespect. You're like, if you give me an answer I don't like, I'm nailing it. Yeah, if you gave an answer, no. I mean, if they give an answer that feels like it's aligned, that's the holy grail, right? Because your actions are definitely relaying your values to your children. That's so exciting. But the other possibility of them saying the values that you're like, that is not at all what I care about is that your kids feel safe saying that to you and, you know, like making a new plan for figuring out what's going on. The only thing that would say to me, like, red flag is if they're like, I can't tell my parents what I'm seeing because they can't handle it. Right,
1: right. I mean, it is amazing. I think the child's instinct to want to protect and take care of their parent if they see a parent in distress is just it's just mind boggling. I know. I know. I,
0: sometimes when my daughter, more my younger daughter, I would say than my older daughter, everybody has their vibe. When she gets a little caretaker with me, I actually like slightly panic because, <laughs> and that's my own, you know, I yeah. have to reflect on why that is, but I'm just like, God, you're so empathetic your job isn't to take care of me, but it's a balance because also that's right. one of her strengths. And I don't want to not see that that's one of her strengths.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I it just, it's such a cool, I mean, one my dad said to me at one point, and uh, I am certainly not shy about sharing this, but so much addiction in my family. So it was, uh, you know, it was a war zone. It was a war zone in my family. My father managed to get out alive, but she's Louise. And at one point I remember him saying to me when my kids were very little and he said, you know, if you're having, and I was just my son that was born, but he was like, if you have children to fulfill some need in you, you know, to, to fulfill you, fill your life, don't do it. If you have children to grow you and make you grow up in ways you can't even imagine and challenge you have kids. And I'm like reflecting back on that. I'm like, that was probably the most, I mean, it was a pearl of wisdom that my father gave to me. It was, it was profound. And you told him. Oh yeah. I was like, dad, right on. I mean, it's from his own experience of trying it the wrong way. Right. his own family was a mess. And so he's like, I'm going to be, I mean, this is it. I'm going to be the perfect parent. I'm going to be the perfect parent of the perfect family. And, you know, smocking dresses and all the things, and it's all going to be perfect. And then, although he he doesn't know what a smocking dress is, but he married someone who could figure that out. And then, you know, here we are at like rehab. And my dad is like, wow, that backfired. Wow. He sort of woke up to, oh, This has nothing to do with making this perfect. This has to do with human beings and my relationship to them and who they are. Exactly. You know, I'm not going to be able to outrun this by controlling it. I
0: love that. I mean, I don't love it because it was your (laughs) lived experience and really hard, but I love that point and that realization. It's so profound. And I think that it's like the exact story of what is going on, which is we are. So tightly clinging to control and getting it better, stronger, faster, that we're losing relationship. And relationship, we know from the science, like above all else, having one connected relationship with an adult who is attuned to you, but not all the time, just more often than not, is something that can move the needle from like toxic stressors to tolerable stressors, which is real hope. And I feel like. We get so bogged down in the minutiae to your point of like about your dad and about those moments with our kids. It's like, we forget to just be in relationship, just be with someone. Right. Because we've just got such an agenda and we're so hell bent on getting it right that we just lose the plot.
1: Yeah. What do you think are, and I just wish I could reach the screen and give you the biggest hug because this very straightforward message, I just want everyone to be aware that what Elisa is saying is distilled from all the research. There's no gimmick here. It's like, this is what is distilled from all the various literature, all the various researchers that have been doing this work for eons in many different subfields. It really distills down to this, which is about that relationship and the connection of that relationship. And it's not to say,
0: and yes, thank you for saying that because I very much have not made any of this information up. These are not my own principles. I just sort of put them together in a particular way and made them our words.
1: (laughs) Well, no, but it's so accessible and so unbelievably helpful for people. Thank you. I hope it is helpful. It is so (laughs) helpful. It is so helpful. I mean, you're my go-to if something's not, if I feel like I'm off, which I frequently am, then you're my go-to. Like I'm overreacting. What should I do? What am I doing here? And it's always a calming word. I feel like that for me is the green flag. Like, okay, this made me feel less stressed so that I can actually have more space to handle it.
0: Right, right. And that is also why I'm well aware that there are specific things that sometimes come up that you just like, okay, all that's all well and good, but like, I need to get through the night. Like I've got an issue. And it's why I still put practical scenarios in the book because I wanted to recognize that sometimes you're too tired to, you just like, just tell me, tell me, <laughs> just tell me what around. to do.
1: Yeah, exactly. What are a few things that you think that people would be surprised to know? Maybe myths that people have, ideas that people have that is either debunked by developmental science or is not backed up by developmental science?
0: Okay. I think that one myth or one confusion is that in order to be sensitive caregivers, we need to see how our child feels and make a path forward that's easier for them. We basically need to fix the feeling. And in order to be considered sensitive, like you can imagine, like we stop everything. We give our child the space to get through their feelings. We fix that moment and then we feel better. Everybody's happy. And kind of like what your father was trying to do probably is your poor dad, like, let's not
1: talk about him. That seems cruel. No, I mean, he's like the most optimistic and wonderful and loving and a terrific grandfather. But he would be the first to say, he's like, it was a shit sandwich, you know? I dealt with my dad, I dealt with my kids. But he'd be the first to say, it was like his need to make things perfect that was getting in his way.
0: Exactly, and I think that when we see our children going through hard feelings, like a dumb example is like, your child doesn't get invited to a party and you see how heartbroken they are. And then you call the parent who you're friends with and you're like, can you just throw me a bone? My kid's having a really hard time. Can you invite them?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And how many of us would do something like that? And it seems harmless. But you're doing that all the time. You're fixing that experience of having a hard feeling. Your child doesn't know how to survive a hard feeling. So the very loving act of trying to smooth the path was the most... Ironically, harmful act. Yeah, and again, I want to say that with the caveat that I don't mean once in a while. I mean, if that's your go-to place because it's too hard for you to bear the experience of your child having a hard time. Yeah. So I think that's one thing. It's just like our confusing sensitivity with fixing feelings. Mm-hmm. I guess the other one is that I think it's a big myth to think that there is reputable procedural acts that are linked with attachment relationships.
1: Okay, say this in a way that even I who have a degree would understand. I think there's a
0: lot of noise out there for parents particularly of parents of young children, but I think this is in every relationship including adults relationships that how you feed your child, how they sleep, mm-hmm. where they sleep, what School they go to, whether they sit in the front seat or the back seat is going to impact your relationship, your connection, your attachment, attachment being the scientific language around how we view like a secure relationship you know, whether you breastfeed or bottle feed, like these are things that plague us, whether you have a C-section or a vaginal birth or adopt. Like we spend so much time on details like this because we think that it has an impact on this unfolding relationship being secure and beautiful. It's goes back to the same thing of like, I get why you want a map of procedures to do to lead to connection. Yeah. But it takes you out of connection. I just wanted to
1: say that. It does. Oh my gosh. No, I mean, I'm like, can we put this in the front of the episode? It's so profound. It's so important. And by the way, this is the cannon fodder of everybody shaming everybody else. I did it this way. You did it that way. I did attachment parenting. You didn't do attachment parenting. I'm like, oh my gosh, we're not even talking about attachment when we're talking about attachment parenting. That doesn't mean anything. But I think you're absolutely right. It's like all of these little details are what we fixate on. And it makes us feel better. So I get why we do, because it feels like we can control it. But
0: it also makes us completely detached from the actual connection. And I would go as far as saying that the reason we criticize other people is not because we think we're right, but because we're afraid we're wrong. And if we don't convince other people of our rightness, then maybe we didn't do it perfectly. And that feels terrible. It feels terrible.
1: Yeah. That hits for me because I, <laughs> I was saying to you earlier, I've become persona mom grata talking about <laughs> phones. Like, why does every kid have a smartphone? Nobody should have a smartphone. I know the research, you know, I mean, I'm like insufferable. I I feel like I've become the parent. They're like, oh God, she's here. But, <laughs> it's to- <laughs> but it's totally because if I'm being honest, I am very clear on the research. So that is not where my uncertainty lies. My uncertainty lies in, man, this is uncharted territory. I don't know how my son is going to connect with his friends. I don't know if this is going to work. Maybe he is going to be more isolated. Maybe he will miss out socially. And while I can say, oh, who cares? I love him deeply and I want him to thrive. And so of course there's this little nagging angst in me of what if I'm getting this one wrong? And so then I want to just beat my drum and I'm, by the way, this, uh, this episode will make me, you're welcome to all the moms that this school, my son goes to, I will stop talking about this, but, um, (laughs) I will now shut my mouth about this, but it's totally right. That's exactly what's going on is that I don't want to feel alone. I don't want to feel alone that I'm screwing something up for my kid on my own, that I'm, there's no safety in numbers in my screw up here because we are a little bit outliers yes, on that front.
0: I know, and it is scary. And by the way, the truth is, even on phones, I totally agree with you. And also, I have one kid, I don't care what phone she has or what she's doing because she is super self-regulated. Yeah. And it doesn't matter. And I have another one who I feel like, I better keep a very watchful eye on this. And I think that's one of the things about research too, is that you can't actually say it is true for everyone. You can say it is true for the majority of people in this particular study, and it's been replicated enough times that you're going to assume that your child falls in the category of the average of that study. But then you have to look at your kid and you have to ask yourself who you are. Like one of the reasons I also waited on phones was because I didn't have the bandwidth. I knew myself and I didn't have the bandwidth to pay that close of attention. Me neither. the phone. Like I yep. was like, I can barely check my stuff. Like I cannot add teaching you how to drive this car.
1: Yeah. So yeah.
0: I think, you know, it's all part of that. But when we really break it down, it's one thing for you to be certain that that is the wrong thing for your kids. And it's one thing for you to know the research is not panning out to suggest that there is a benefit to having that phone, but it's a whole other bag to then try to convince other parents. And that is more about,
1: yeah, I don't want to feel alone here and I don't want to have made a mistake. Totally. I don't want to a year down, two years down the road, feel like, oh my gosh, you know, I I made a big mistake and it deeply impacted my kid and all of the anxiety that comes with that, right? So that's exactly what it is about. And then
0: it's like also the question of believing that, you have to make a decision in your parenting that doesn't have
1: validation around you. Yep.
0: That's hard.
1: Well, I want to pause on this one point for everybody. The reason why I think Eliza is so spectacular <laughs> in what she does. No, serious. I'm totally serious about this. The reason I think you're so spectacular is precisely for this, because you are trying in raising good humans, you're really helping grow up the parent. And that is really what your work is all about. It's really helping a parent to claim their own autonomy and leadership and authority, which is ultimately what makes a solid, great parent is someone who has a strong sense of self, you know, knows their values, has that inner compass and can handle things when they get tough, they are also resilient. And I think that there's this echo throughout the book always of leading people toward that self-leadership and self-government. As we are trying to get our kids to self-govern, we have to be self-governing ourselves. And I think that in every aspect of your message, in every chapter, which are so practical, that's what you're inviting people to. You're inviting them to be a leader in their family, to be a leader of themselves, a leader of their kids, and a leader as a parent.
0: I mean, come on, Sash. We don't have to say anything else.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Serious. No, you're, you're the absolute, absolute best. I love this so much. You guys, I have been anticipating this book drop for so long because <laughs> there's so much noise. I mean, I, I'm just, she can't say it, but I'll say it. There's so much noise in this parenting space. I caramba. <laughs> it's so fraught. Everyone's so offended and so sensitive. And Elisa is the only voice of reason. Maybe I won't say only voice of reason, but one of the very few voices of reasons out there. And it's just so wise and with so much care, making the research accessible, but making that very clear, which is like, this is an average. And on average, this is what we find. And you and your relationship with your kid is unique. You are amazing. Oh my gosh, I love you so much. Everyone needs to run out and buy this book, Immediate (laughs) Mall. (laughs) go get it go get it and you will be the best most perfect parent ever if you read this book no i'm totally kidding you will feel a whole lot better about yourself right
0: all this to say you won't be able to be a good
1: parent without this book (laughs) exactly (laughs) all this to say is buy this book so you can be the best parent ever No, but it I, I, you hit the nail on the head, which is when you actually feel successful as a parent and you don't put so much pressure on every little micro moment, because there are lots that we blow and screw up, then we get to actually show up and have a relationship with someone without all the tension, without the fear, without the walking on eggshells, like just being ourselves. I love that. I love you. Best parenting expert out there, in my humble opinion. Oh my God. All right, you guys. I love Aliza. We'll bring her back to talk about all sorts of things. There's lots of things I'd love to talk to you about specifically, and we can dig into 18. all my nonsense about screen time. but run, don't walk to get her book, The Five Principles of Parenting. It will make you feel better. It will not make you feel worse. It is not one of those books you're going to pick up and you're like, I hate everything and you want to throw it in the trash immediately. No, it will be relief. you'll feel like a champ. You are a champ. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> All right, woman, I love you so much. For more dirt on today's topic, make sure to visit the episode show notes at drsashaheinz.com. Or if you have any specific questions, you can shoot me an email at hello at or find me on Instagram at Heinz. If you're enjoying The Change Lab There are three things you can do about it. Subscribe and leave me a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Share the show with a friend or five or head over to drsashaheinz.com to check out the ways you can work with me and dive deeper into this work. And if you're feeling wild, maybe do all three. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next Monday.